You probably know the story of Pride and Prejudice. It's a story by Jane Austen or a book by Jane Austen. Maybe you have a loved one who, maybe you or maybe a loved one you have, encouraged you to watch one of the many uh, forms, many series, movies, TV shows uh, that have been based on the book. But if you're not familiar with it, Pride and Prejudice is about a uh, group of sisters, the Bennett sisters. And really the story is about how each and every one of them, who and how each of them gets married, uh, focused on one particular sister. But in the story, there are really only two outward Christian characters. The first one you really meet is uh, the clergyman, the town clergyman. His part of the story is rather humorous as he tries to woo and propose to each one of the Bennett sisters, all of them turning him down. Eventually, he wants to get married. And you recognize that he's not very good looking. He's a little bit arrogant, but he will provide a stable situation. He's going to marry, when you meet him, it becomes clear, he's going to marry the first girl that says yes. Now, the second outward Christian character you meet is one of the sisters, that being Mary. Now, in the book, Jane Austen writes that Mary has to carry the burden of being plain. Well, for Jane Austen, what does that mean? That means that she has to carry the burden of being the least attractive sister. And we're told in the book that Mary, because she is the least attractive sister, feels like she must compensate somehow. And so what she does is she makes herself a stalwart, knowledgeable Christian. She's going to be the most Christian Christian in this family. But the reality is all of this makes her quite conceited. Because her faith really isn't about faith. It's a power play. She simply wants to try and make up for some way that God has shortchanged her in the looks department. In other words, her faith is not genuine. Now, we will return to Second Chronicles next winter. But I realize, looking at the calendar, that we are very quickly moving towards Easter. And I think, as your pastor, one of the things I always want to do every year is start preparing our hearts and minds for the lesson of Easter. In most cases, I like to come to the parables of Jesus. Parables are simple. They're, they're just stories or images that, uh, that Jesus will use to try and teach a spiritual truth. And here in this text, it's pretty obvious that the image is bread. Now, just before this text, Jesus has done one of his most famous miracles. That would be the feeding of the 5,000. He has met a need for a group of hungry people. Now, the end of that story, after he feeds all of them, the text tells us that they want to make him king. But he leaves. But then afterwards, Jesus sends away the crowd, sends away the disciples, eventually retreating to the other side of the lake. The following day, as we heard, or as we read, the people wake up, they realize, well, Jesus and the disciples are gone. Well, they know where they went. Capernaum, by this point, was pretty clearly the headquarters of Jesus' ministry, and so they all knew what had happened. And so they all get into boats, into boat taxis, 
which would have been very prevalent from Tiberias to Capernaum, because Capernaum was a very uh, well-known city. And when they arrived there, you saw in the text that they asked Jesus a question. Lord, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did you get here? And that brings us to our text. And what this morning the Bible describes as the hardest lesson Jesus ever gave. The hardest lesson he ever gave. Now, there's really only one lesson in this text. But I have four points for you this morning. What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to take three of those points, and they're all going to be truths. They're going to point us to the lesson. So the fourth point is going to be that one lesson. So we're going to go through three truths that Jesus is going to use to eventually point us to the lesson. So four points for you this morning. Number one, the first truth I would want to share with you is this. When we focus on our physical lives, we become spiritually blind. The first truth of this text, pointing us to the what lesson. When we focus on our physical lives, we become spiritually blind. Now, the first thing I want you to know, so they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Or, Rabbi, how did you get here? I want you to know how Jesus answers the question. And in a word, he doesn't. What he says to them is this, the only reason you took a boat and crossed a lake and made the journey here is because your belly is full. You completely missed the the message of the feeding of the 5,000. He says, you followed me here to get bread that may extend your physical life. And what you should be looking for is spiritual bread that will give you eternal life. Now, if you go through the Gospels, one of the things that you'll find that is very consistent is many times people do not understand what Jesus is talking about. For example, when he's speaking to a group of people, Jesus says, tear down the temple and I'll build it in three days. And everybody there goes, wait a minute, how's he going to do that? It took 40 years to build the temple. And the text tells us, well, Jesus was talking about his body. Or you think about the woman at the well. He shows up and says, daughter, I'm going to give you water that will quench your thirst. And her first objection is what? You don't have a bucket. Or... He goes along and he says things to his disciples. In fact, one time they're in a boat crossing the lake and he says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Talking about the teachings of the Pharisees. So he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the Bible tells us the disciples all think he's upset because we forgot to buy bread. These are all examples of Jesus trying to teach spiritual truth using these physical realities or these physical illustrations. And people just don't get it. Over and over again, you see in this text, Jesus uses this image of bread or other images. And again and again in this text, they miss it. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. And the question is why? Why don't they get it? And the simple answer is this. They were overvaluing the physical. 
Now, I want you to understand what I mean by that. The Bible in no way tells us that the physical is unimportant. That would be the error or the false teaching of Gnosticism. The Bible is very aware of the fact that we need food to live. We need clothes and shelter to survive. The psalmist talks about how if we live a long life, it's a long life that we can give service to God and we can praise Him with that life. The Bible is very clear and knows that the idea of death and suffering scares us. The point here is the overvaluing of the physical leading to the point of spiritual blindness. Let me give you an example. One of the things that Jesus will say to the people is this, I have come to give you an abundant life. Now most of us measure abundance, having a lot of something, as uh, maybe living a long life. Maybe it's about being full of good things. We kind of approach that idea like an accountant. An accountant would say abundance is by a number. So on a bank account, you have an abundance if you've reached a certain number. And most of us think that way. We think of abundance in the form of numbers. So years lived, money accumulated, children, grandchildren had, so on and so forth. Until we reach that number... Most of us don't consider that we have had an abundant life. Except the Bible's clear. The abundant life in Christ cannot be measured with numbers. God does not put himself in our debt to give us expected numbers, no matter what those numbers are. The point is this, is that these people are spiritually blinded by the fact that they were quantifying all of their life by the physical overvaluing the physical, and thus they were blind. They did not understand. They looked at life in the form of physical things, numbers, outward appearances, and they became blind to spiritual truth. And the fact is we do the same thing as Christians in the sense that we don't value what we really have. We don't value what we are blessed to have. We too close our eyes and close our ears to the reality that we have the greatest blessing, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And this leads to the second truth. So if overly focusing on the physical leaves the spiritually blind, number two, spiritual blindness leads to missing what God is saying and doing. In response to Jesus' teaching that they should be chasing after the bread that gives them eternal life, they asked Jesus, all right, we're ready to do whatever work is necessary. All right, they're looking for something to do, just like the rich young ruler. He shows up, he says, Lord, I want to have eternal life. He says, so what must I do? And Jesus simply responds to this crowd by saying, you have to do the work of God. And so they say, okay, we're ready to do that. What is the work of God? And Jesus simply replies, it's to believe in the one that God sent. There's no confusion, actually. As we go through the text, it becomes clear. They're not confused by what he says. Jesus has said that believing in him is the work, the thing to do in order to have eternal life. Because they, the reason I know they're not confused is because they respond with the right question. What evidence do you have to prove that we should believe in you? 
And they even bring up the scriptures. And they say, look, in the Bible, it says that Moses, the one who led them out of Israel, the one they were supposed to follow, fed them 40 years in the wilderness. Can you do that? That's essentially the challenge. We want you to do something like that. Well, Jesus responds by saying, look, you've completely missed the, the very thing that you tried to point out, the essence of the story you mentioned. He says to them, Moses didn't provide the food. God did. God was the one who provided the physical bread and the meat in the wilderness. And the implication that Jesus is making here is that God is the only one who can give you the bread of eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm the only bread that leads to the resurrection on the last day. And the big picture here is this. Jesus is trying to get them to connect. That when he fed them in the wilderness, he fed the 5,000 just a few verses earlier. And he fed them in the wilderness. They are to see the picture of Moses and how they were fed by God in the wilderness there. And perhaps we might even shake our heads and say, that's pretty obvious. Why are these people so dense? In fact, John gets in on that. In verse 59, he says, look, Jesus said all this while teaching at a synagogue. John wants you to know it's very possible to be hearing and and surrounded by God's truth and completely miss everything. Or let me explain it this way. In Colossians 1.24, I believe it is, Paul the Apostle is going to say, That our lives are to fill out the sufferings of Christ. He's not saying that because he's saying the suffering of Christ is insufficient for your sins. He's saying it's the idea of this. That the life, death, and resurrection of Christ should be replayed over and over and over again in your life. We, in our lives, give color to the death or life and death of Christ. So, for example, you should be giving physical and spiritual bread to your neighbor. And when you suffer difficulty, when you face a problem, you're supposed to be faithful to God, just like Jesus was in his suffering. And then when you get to the other side of that trouble in your life, God raises you up out of that difficulty, much like a resurrection. You are to give glory to God just as Jesus did. And this repeats itself many, many times in our lives. But then we're spiritual blind and we don't see it. And we don't see how our singleness or our joblessness or whatever it is, how it can replay the life and death and resurrection of Christ in our lives. And you've heard me share this multiple times and I'll share it again. At the closing day of Carol's wife, uh, Carol White's life, her and I had many conversations about this about the reality that not only was she faithful in her suffering and being an inspiration to the people who watched her do that, but she was gaining, by being faithful in her suffering, she was gaining an understanding, a knowledge, a deep knowledge of the love a Savior could have, that he would suffer purposely for her. You see, Mary Bennett thought that God had shortchanged her in the looks department. Read her Bible from cover to cover. And missed the very thing that she should have related to in the fact that Jesus is described as plain. When difficult times come and times of blessing come, don't be a Mary Bennett. 
And remind yourself that no matter what is happening in your story, the greater your story is wrapped around by the greater story, the bigger story of Christ. And that leads us to the third truth. Number three. When we don't see what God is doing, we stop being a disciple. Now, I want to be very clear here. When I say that we stop being a disciple, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. What I mean is that we start seeking other places for answers. We start looking for other wisdom. We start worshiping other idols or other gods we think might save us. So we look at the text, and finally the the people just come right out and ask Jesus to give them the bread of eternal life. And Jesus responds, I am the bread that's come from heaven. I'm the one from heaven, and if you believe in me, you will be raised up on the last day. Now, this is one of those moments where they don't get it because they respond with, don't we know your mom and dad? How could you come from heaven? And so Jesus responds by saying what? You not only have to believe in me, you have to eat my flesh. And they all go, what? And Jesus comes even further into it. He lowers the hammer. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will never have eternal life. And they begin to grumble. And Jesus says, why are you grumbling? I'm trying to give you spiritual wisdom, which you will never attain with physical thinking. And so they simply respond, this is hard. Who can understand this? And then the text tells us that almost everybody leaves and follows Jesus no more. The teaching he's trying to tell them is pretty clear. He's saying to them that Jesus has to be everything. And he has to be enough. He's saying that we have to find all of our nourishment, all of our abundance, all of our fulfillment in him. And only him. And the application is easy because what he's saying to them is you have to follow somebody who doesn't value bread like you do. Who doesn't value getting a spouse or an education or having health like you do. But that's what we want, right? We want a God who's obligated to answer all of our questions. We want a God who's obligated to bless without the cost of discipleship. We want to skip right over the valley of the shadow of death. We want to go straight to the calm waters, the green grass, and the plentiful picnic that we get to rub in the faces of our enemies. And sometimes when the reality sinks in that this is a God of both joy and suffering, we don't want to follow. And in fact, we want to keep that thing so much of a secret because we know, we know that if people find out that the God we serve is a God of both joy and suffering, it's going to scare everybody off. But the text is clear. Jesus is clear. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to be physically brought back from the dead, not just go to heaven as a spirit, if you want to be physically brought back from the dead, you have to find and invest everything in him and follow him no matter where he takes you. So those are the three truths. When we focus on physical wants and needs, we become spiritually blind. When we are spiritually blind, we don't see what God is saying and doing. And when we fail to see what God is saying and doing, we often go after other gods and other wisdom, leaving the one wisdom that leads 
to eternal life. And that brings us to the single most important or the one lesson of this text. Number four, there is nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else to go but to hope and follow Jesus. So after taking away all the hope in physical things, taking away all their hope in people, after saying they have to put all of their eggs in his basket, Jesus turns to the twelve and he says to them, will you go too? And Peter answers and says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. We believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Or another way to say what Peter said is, Lord, you give us hard teaching. Lord, you give us hard trials. But where else are we going to go? You know, this disciple thing, it sounds immensely unappealing. Finding all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our fulfillment, all of our pleasure in you sounds completely impossible. But who else are we going to follow? There's nobody like you. And so when we are in need, when we are suffering, when we're unsure whether we're going to accomplish a task or we're going to find the strength to find the right or find the strength to do the right thing, this is the question that should be loud in our hearts and mind. Where else are you going to go? This is, this is a God who does not promise convenience. He does not promise our preference at the center of his plan. This is a Jesus that says, be my disciple, take up my cross, follow me. It would be so nice to have a God who is therapeutic. But that's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. But where else will you go? See, no matter what issue we're facing, we're only fooling ourselves until we admit there is nowhere else to go. As one pastor I know put it, in times of praise, in times of sadness, we hope in the Holy One of God because we have nowhere else to go. Now to close the text, verses 70 and 71, Jesus makes a very startling statement. One of the ones that stayed was a follower of the devil. You could call this the Mary Bennett warning. Just because you're sitting here this morning doesn't mean that you have eaten the bread of life. It doesn't mean you are going to be raised up on the last day. Mary Bennett would sit in a place like this on Sunday morning, but only for her own sake. And what these closing verses are supposed to do is provoke a self-examination. If these people could be fed by a miracle, could sit in a synagogue, if they could listen to Jesus teach and still miss everything just like Judas did, is it possible for you? And the text is saying, it is. But even in the face of that, the truth remains. Jesus is the bread of life. And there is nowhere else to go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these simple spiritual truths in this one very difficult lesson. And I pray, Father, would sink deep inside of us. There is nowhere else to go but to hope and to follow you. We pray, Father, that we would find by your grace the strength to do so. I pray, Father, by your power, give faith to those who do not have any. 
by your power as you cured the blind when you were on this earth. We pray, Father, you would cure spiritual blindness. You would open deaf ears, break hard hearts. Lord, let us never be complacent thinking because we are sitting here that we have eaten that bread and we will be raised up. But Lord, let us put all our hope, all our joy, all of our strength in your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.